says, beginning in verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks, and he watches all of my paths. Elihu says that Job claimed to be sinless, but Job never claimed to be sinless. Job claimed to be innocent. It was Zophar who claimed that Job was claiming sinlessness. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar all had Job's perception wrong. And somehow Elihu got it wrong in this first statement. But then he gets it right, and he quotes Job as saying that God was untrust in treating him like his enemy. And Job has said that over and over in this debate. He feels like God has become his enemy, and God is not being fair and just in his dealings with him. And so Elihu turns Job's words back to him. And then in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 33... Elihu tells Job that he is wrong. Now look carefully at these verses. These are powerful, significant verses in the argument. He says, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 33, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And Elihu challenges Job and he says, Job, remember, God is infinitely greater than man. And God's ways are beyond man's ability to grasp and understand. Therefore, Job, you should be slow to complain against him because God has been speaking to you all throughout your suffering. The problem isn't that God has been silent, Job. The problem is that you've not been able to perceive the voice of God in your life. And what I would say to all of us this morning is, how many of us can relate to Job on this point? How many times have you yourself complained to God about being silent in your life? All of us have at one point or another. We can all relate to Job in this matter. Ray Steadman says something that's very helpful here that describes our impatient condition in dealing with God. He says, quote, Often we say God hasn't answered our prayers because we prayed 10 minutes ago or 10 hours ago or 10 days ago and the answer we expected hasn't arrived. At other times we say God hasn't answered our prayers because the answer that came was not the one we hoped for. And listen to what he says next. God answered, but he didn't answer according to our wishes or according to our timetable. And that is our problem. He doesn't answer often the way we want him to, and he doesn't answer in the time in which we think he should and this was Job's problem, just like it's yours and mine. And what Elihu does in these verses is shows Job and us a different perspective on prayer in the midst of our suffering. 
According to Elihu, God has been answering Job's prayers throughout his time of affliction, but Job just wasn't alert to God's answers and God's activity in his life. And instead of remembering that God's ways are not our ways, Job began to view God from his own human standpoint and his own limited perspective. And Job projected his own self-image and understanding on God, and Job has forgotten that God is infinitely greater than Job, and that God's ways are infinitely greater than Job's ways, and God's thoughts are infinitely greater than Job's thoughts and understanding. Now, in verses 15 to 26... Elihu will go on and describe for Job three ways that God speaks. And I guarantee you that if you've zoned out in this, uh, working through this section, you will be drawn back in to what he says in these verses. In verses 15 to 18 of chapter 33, he tells Job that God speaks through dreams to terrify man with warnings that he may turn man aside and keep back his soul from the pit And from perishing with the sword. Look beginning in verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Now listen carefully to your pastor. We need to remember that in the days before the Bible was written, in the days of Job, God occasionally used dreams and visions to speak to his people and to direct them. But I will remind every single one of us this morning that the Bible tells us through the writer of Hebrews and through Peter in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 that now God speaks to us through his son, and through his word. And that if we desire to know the mind of God and his purposes for our lives and for our world and for mankind, we should read and listen to the word of God and not wait for some dream or vision or dramatic revelation or extraordinary spiritual phenomena. Our world is full of this kind of activity. Our churches are full of this kind of activity, and it is wrong. The Bible is clear. He has given us a more certain and sure word than any experience we could ever have, and it is the word of God that is sitting in your lap. That is your guide. That is your direction to know God and to know his will and to know what he is doing in your life this very moment in your suffering and affliction. And please, dear friend, don't ever be deceived and drawn away from that. You build your life on the Bible, not on an experience. You can have an experience if you eat bad Mexican food. Build it on the Word of God. And then, in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 33, Elihu tells Job that God speaks through our pain. 
Look at these verses, beginning in verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Do you see what he's doing? He's painting a picture of a man in the final stages of sickness who's approaching death. And he says that it is here in the midst of this pain that God awakens this man, this sufferer, to the true condition of his soul. And it results in a change in this man's values and his priorities and his perspective on life. Don't miss this, friends. What Elihu's teaching Job and you and me is that God speaks to us through our pain, through our suffering. And just when you think he's silent, just when you think he's not there, and C.S. Lewis would tell you this morning that that's when he speaks the loudest, through your pain and suffering. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain, he says, insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience and he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Job, God's speaking to you. He's been speaking to you, Job, for 32 chapters. He's been shouting at you in your pain. You just haven't heard it. He's there. And then in verses 23 to 28 of chapter 33, Elihu tells Job that God speaks through angels. Oh boy. Who are his messengers sent with his message. Look at these verses. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him... And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him and he sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and he says, I have sinned and perverted what is right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. He paints another picture in these verses. Having been warmed by dreams and visions and having been disciplined through sickness and suffering, this sinner, this man that Elihu has been describing, which many believe he's talking about Job himself, is approaching the pit of death. And he's rescued, Elihu says, by an angel, by a mediator, by one of the thousand who pays a ransom for his life and rescues him from going down to the pit. And according to Elihu in these verses, this mediator declares what the sufferer should do. He extends mercy to the sufferer. He restores his strength. 
so that the sufferer can pray to God and be accepted and restored by God to a life of joy and righteousness. And once restored, this man sings the redemption of his soul to anyone who would listen. And he tells of how God has kept his soul from going down to the pit and how he's now living in the light of God. Dear friends, can you not see who and what Elihu is telling Job about? What has Job been longing for all of these chapters? A mediator. One who would go between him and God. One who would draw God to him and him to God. And Elihu says, there is a mediator. He is an angel. He is an angel of the Lord. He's one of a thousand. And he will pay the ransom for you so that you can be reconciled to God and then when you're reconciled to God you'll be full of joy you'll sing God's praises you'll tell everybody about how God has rescued your soul from death he is speaking about Jesus Christ and the salvation that Jesus Christ brings to the sufferer and to you and to me only Jesus Christ can fulfill the role of mediator Only Jesus Christ can pay the ransom for your sin and for my sin. Only Jesus Christ can reorient our life and change our values, our priorities, and our direction. Only Jesus Christ can put a song in our heart that we would sing to other people about what God has done for us. Only Jesus Christ can snatch us from the darkness and put us in the light of life with God. And Elihu is pointing Job and he's pointing you and me to Christ. And he does it to help Job, to rescue Job from his despair. Well, he concludes his first speech in verses 31 to 33 by telling Job to pay attention and listen to what he's saying, to remain silent and let him teach wisdom. So how do we process all that Elihu has said in this first speech? I have three points of application for you. Number one, Elihu teaches Job and us that God is not silent in our suffering, that when we hurt, We may not sense his presence. We may not feel he is listening to or answering our prayers. But God is always present. And as C.S. Lewis reminds us, he always speaks the loudest in our pain. He is present with you in your hurt, in your affliction, and in your pain. Application number two. If you're struggling with the perceived silence of God like Job... Is it possible this morning that God has already answered your prayer, but you're unwilling to accept his answer? Would you remember this morning that God is infinitely greater than you are and his ways and his thoughts are far above your ways and your thoughts, that he has a perspective that you will never be able to understand this side of heaven. So instead of complaining about God and arguing with God, maybe today you should Trust God and his plan for your life. And application number three. Over and over in this passage, Elihu has emphasized that God uses pain and suffering to rescue people from the pit 
to rescue them from sin and to rescue them from death. And he says that God does this by paying the ransom for us, by paying the price for our freedom. And friends, that is what Jesus Christ has done for every single one of us. He has paid the ransom price for sin, which God set as the shedding of blood. And Jesus Christ shed his blood to cover your sin and to cover my sin and pay the ransom that God demanded so that you and I can be reconciled to him. And could it just be this morning that your suffering and your affliction and all that's happening in your life, God is using to point you to Christ, to see your need for him and the ransom that he's paid for you so that your sins can be forgiven you could have a restored relationship with the God who made you and gave you life and so that your life could move in a different direction. Is it possible that God is using this suffering in your life to bring you to Jesus? Why would you not trust him today and turn from your sin? Well, that was his first speech. And by the way, that's the longest the second speech is found in chapter 34. And Elihu tells Job that God is not unjust. And in this speech, Elihu addresses Job's complaint that God is unfair. We've seen that as Job examined his life, he concluded that there was no profit in living for and obeying God because all it brought him was heartache and suffering. And as Elihu begins this second speech in the first four verses, he addresses both Job and his three friends, and he invites them all to listen to his next argument. And then in verses 5 through 9, he quotes Job's words against God as Job contended throughout the book that God was dealing with an innocent man. Now look at what he says in verse 7. He says, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in the company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. And what Elihu is saying to Job is, Job, your complaints and your scorn have risen up to God like a man who drinks up water, who can't get his thirst quenched. Job, all you've done is complain to God. All you've done is scoff at God. Job, you have been in so much pain that you have shown all this scorn towards God in your discouragement and in your depression. All you're saying to God is that he's unjust and he's unfair and he's treating you terribly, allowing you to suffer this way. And Job, when you talk about God like that, you are putting yourself in the category of the wicked. Job, that's how the wicked talk about God. Job, don't talk like that about God. He's not unjust. Then look in verse 9 one more time. We see in verse 9 that Job is really close to throwing in the towel. He, he says, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Job's just about at the breaking point. He's just about ready to quit. And Elihu's argument will help him. 
In verses 10 to 12, he responds to Job's argument, stating that God cannot be unjust, that God is always true to his character, and God always acts according to his nature. Look in verses 10 to 12, and these are excellent verses to underline. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. He cannot do wickedness. And from the Almighty that he should do wrong. God can do no wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. And the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job It is impossible for God to do wickedness. Job, it is impossible for God to pervert justice. Job, it is against his nature and it is against his character. Job, you need to remember that God will always act towards you and towards the world according to his nature and according to his character no matter how long it may take. Job, God may not settle his accounts immediately, But one day he will. He will make everything right and he will bring perfect and complete judgment. Job, you're not viewing God right. And then in verses 13 to 15 of this chapter, Elihu contends that God is beyond accountability to anyone. That he is so powerful that if he were to withdraw himself from the world that he made... Everyone and everything in the world would perish. Look at verse 15. All flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Job, you've got God all wrong. He is a just God. He is a holy God. He acts completely in line with his character and his nature. Job, God is so powerful. He has so much authority. He's sovereign over everything that if he were to remove his hand, the world and everything in it would perish. In verses 16 to 20, he declares that God is the impartial ruler of the universe, that he judges the rich and the poor, the wicked and the princes without any partiality. That's how sovereign he is. That's how powerful he is. That's how just this God is, Job. And then in verses 21 to 24, he exalts God as the omniscient judge who sees all the ways of man and all the steps of man. That God is so omniscient, he never needs to take on an investigation. He never needs to study what is happening in a person's life. He knows everyone and everything about them, and he can judge with perfect wisdom, and nothing escapes the all-seeing gaze of this just God. Look at these verses, 21 to 24. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment, He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Job, you've got it all wrong. You think that people are getting away with things. It's quite the opposite. God sees everything. God knows everything. And in his timing, he will bring just judgment. You're not viewing God properly. And then in verses 25 to 30, he emphasizes that God is the absolute executioner of the universe who will overthrow the wicked when they least expect it, whether at night 
or in public, he will bring judgment on them. But the most important thing that he says in verses 25 to 30 is this. That if he were to choose to remain silent and not explain his activity and what he is doing in the world, who, who can condemn him? Job, do you think God answers to you? Job, do you think that God has to give you an explanation for what's happening on the news? Job, do you think God has to explain everything to you that's happening in your life? Who in the world do you think you are, Job, to condemn God? God doesn't answer to you. Job, you answer to God. And friends, what Elihu said to Job is a helpful reminder for you and me. God owes you no explanation. He is God and you are not. You humble yourself before him. Verses 31 to 33 of this chapter, Elihu applies all of this truth concerning God's justice to Job. And he tells Job, you have no right to demand that God explain himself. You can ask God to reveal your sin to you. But if you demand things from God, Job, you've gone too far. What's amazing at the end of this chapter is that Elihu quotes Job's three friends who have said that Job speaks without understanding. He's in need of more trials and he mocks God by clapping his hands at him. Now here's what you need to understand about this chapter. Elihu's rebuke of Job is for the purpose of glorifying God. He's exalted God before us so we can see God as he really is in his character and nature. And he's trying to show Job the perspective that he needs of God. And then he is showing Job the error of his ways. So how do we apply this speech? Well, often our suffering causes us to be discouraged. And in our discouragement, we forget about what we know to be true about God. And when life seems unfair to us, we begin to question God's goodness and we begin to question God's justice. Have you ever been there? But Elihu reminds us that God is fair and that God is just. And the question that all of us must answer is this. Are we willing to accept that God, with his superior wisdom and power, must be allowed to govern this world in our lives according to his justice and not ours? That's the question. Does God have the right and the authority to rule over this world and your life and more, my life according to his justice and not yours? And what I would submit to every single one of us this morning is you better be glad. You better be so glad that God rules in his justice and not mine and not yours because we are fickle people. And you catch me on a Monday morning and I'll wipe everything out. 
God is not like that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can have confidence in how he'll deal with us and how he'll deal with this world. So you should think about that. Application number two. The example of Elihu teaches us that we need other believers to confront us when we are going astray. We need people who have the courage to speak into our life and speak truth to us, even in our suffering. Because there's a danger that suffering can lead a person to mischaracterize God. And it's not easy to tell someone who's experiencing tremendous suffering that they are adopting a false view of God or that they are in sin in their persistent anger toward God. The temptation is to overlook all of those things and not confront those errors. And in the name of a faulty view of compassion... We let sufferers at times stay in their anger and stay in their mischaracterization of God when really the best thing that we can do for them after a period of time is confront those errors. Elihu saw Job going down a slippery slope and he confronted him. So my point is simply this. Do you have an Elihu in your life? And are you willing to be one? Number three. His third speech is found in verse 35. And he says in this speech that God is not distant. He declares to Job that God is not distant in our suffering. That God is indeed with us in our pain. He may feel distant when we hurt. But in reality, he is close. He is drawn near to us. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 35, he restates Job's argument that there's no reward for the righteous. And then in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 35, he says, Job, look at the clouds. Do you see how high the clouds are and how far away they are from you? Job, that is a picture of God. God is out of reach. He is far above your ability to grasp. And Job, just because you can't sense his presence, that doesn't mean that he is not there. Now the main point of his third speech is found in verses 9 through 11. Look at these verses. They're powerful verses. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? You should underline verse 10 of chapter 35. And in these verses, Elihu reminds Job and us that God is not distant when we suffer. He tells Job that when we suffer, we cry out to God for help, but no one can say to God, where is God? Where is my maker? It's impossible. In our suffering, he tells Job, for someone to say that God is distant in the midst of affliction because God promises never to leave us. And rather than being absent from us when we need him most, he tells Job in verse 10 that God gives us songs in the night of our suffering, that he teaches us, and that he gives us wisdom. Oh, would you remember that? 
in those moments when you are praying to God and you are wrestling with him and you feel he is silent and he is distant, would you remember the words of Elihu that in those moments God is giving you a song in your darkness, that God is teaching you something in your pain, that God is giving you wisdom in those very moments that you feel God has abandoned you and is far away from you. And he says in verses 12 and 13 that the only time God doesn't answer when we cry to him is when our hearts are full of proud pride and we're lifted up, that God will never answer the proud Job, but he'll give grace to the humble if you'll humble yourself. Do you see how relevant these words are from Elihu? People in every generation Treat the God of the universe as an emergency service. And they only call on him and pay attention to him when they're in trouble. And in those moments of trouble, they cry out to God with the expectation that God is obligated to rescue them from their trials. And they're full of anger and disgust at God when he doesn't respond in the time and in the manner and in the way in which they demand. Or... If he does respond to them, when the trouble is over, they put him back in the emergency glass that says break only in case of an emergency. And Elihu tells Job, Job, you cannot in your suffering ask where God your maker is. Job, he's never left you. He's been there with you the whole time. And Job, maybe, maybe the reason why he's silent, maybe the reason why he's distant is because you have too much pride. And Job, maybe you need to humble yourself before God and talk to him in a different way. Job, you cannot manipulate God. Have you ever experienced what Elihu told Job? Has God ever given you a song in your night? I'll tell you what the book of Job is teaching me. It is teaching me the value of preparing for suffering and hardships. And do you know what one of the key preparations in preparing for suffering is? Are you ready? A hymnal. A hymnal. Something that gives you words to express back to God through song in the midst of your pain and affliction when words seem far from your lips. A hymnal. You know what else will help you in the night? The book of Psalms. Reading those and praying those back to God. You see, when you prepare for suffering with your hymnal and with the Psalms of the faith and the Word of God, you'll learn to sing now. Are you listening, church? You'll learn to sing now what you'll need to sing then before you ever need it. Songs in the night. And I want you to consider this morning how pride affects your prayer life. 
how demanding things from God distances you from God. Who do you think you are to demand things from the God of the universe? You bow before him in humility and dependence and desperation. And James says when you draw near to him like that, he will draw near to you. Oh, friends, God is not distant. He's present. Well, finally, we see his fourth speech in chapters 36 and 37. And this is what he teaches Job in these two chapters, that God is not powerless. When you study these two chapters, you're going to find one word that Elihu repeats over and over again. He uses it four times in chapter 36 alone. It's the word behold. And he uses that word to cause us to pay attention to what he is about to say about God and about his power. He tells us in verses 5 to 10 of chapter 36 that God is mighty in strength and that God is mighty in understanding. And he tells us in verses 11 and 12 that there's only two ways to respond to suffering. Obedience or disobedience. Drawing near to God in dependence or drawing away from Him and disobeying Him. And then when he gets down into verse 17, he begins to give a hymn of the power and the might and the greatness of God. And he tells Job in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 36 that Job should praise God for his great works, that he should magnify God's name for his majestic deeds because God's greatness is beyond comprehension. Look at those verses 24 to 26 of chapter 36. Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Job, this is how great and vast your God is. He is unsearchable. He is mighty in strength, Job. He is mighty in understanding. And then, in verses 27 to 33, Elihu describes the power of God in an autumn storm. That God's power is seen in evaporation and rain. It's seen in clouds and thunder. It's seen in lightning on the sea. And all of this activity displays God's power and greatness. In chapter 37... He employs the description of a thunderstorm in verses 1 through 5. And he says, God is like this. God is all-inspiring, Job. God is powerful, Job. Job, this God, this God we serve and worship, Job, he is threatening and terrifying, Job. He cannot be controlled by man, Job. This God does great things that we can't comprehend. He's like thunder. And he's like lightning. And then in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 37, he says that God is like a snowstorm, Job. He blows the snow in just when he wants to, and it forces all of the animals to stay in the barn. 
And it forces all of humanity to stay indoors. Think about it, friends. God's so powerful that with all the technological advancements of our age, he can cripple the country with one snowstorm. That's how powerful this God is. And then in verses 11 to 13, he describes the power of God in a rainstorm, that God fills the clouds and God empties the clouds. And Job, just as God controls the clouds, Job, he controls the storms of your life as well. Job, he'll fill your life with sorrow and he'll empty your life of sorrow. Job, there's hope for you. The God who allowed all this suffering to happen in your life is the same God who can remove all the suffering from your life. Job, there is no God like this God. He is a God of greatness and majesty and power and wisdom. Consider this God, Job. And then look at what he does at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 37. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Would you just pause for a minute, friends? Would you just hear that verse? When is the last time you've stopped and considered the wonderful, powerful works of the God of the universe? Job, quit thinking about your suffering. Job, quit thinking about your pain and your heartache. Job, think about God and his works. And then, preparing Job for chapter 38, from verse 15 to verse 20, he fires question after question after question to Job. And these questions pale into com in comparison to the questions that we're going to see next week. But he's preparing it. And you, can't, can't you see, can't you feel how Elihu is moving the storyline along in the book of Job? He's pointing him to God. And then let's look at how he ends, 21 to 24. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind is passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men... Fear him, he who does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Job, he's mighty. He's the almighty God. You can't find him, Job. He is great in power. He is clothed with awesome majesty, Job. He is God and you are not clothed in majesty. The almighty Great in power, a God of justice and abundant righteousness. Friends, this is your God. This is the God that we have sung to this morning. This is the God that we have gathered to worship. This is the God who has redeemed our life from the pit. This is the God who can save you if you are separated from him in your sins and trespasses this morning. And Elihu says, how should we respond to the greatness of this God? Do you see the very last thing he says in verse 24? Fear him. That's how you respond, Job. Job, bow before him and fear 
in reverential awe. So let me ask you this morning, suffering friend, how big is your God? How great is your God? Is he big enough to intervene in your life? Is he big enough to rescue you from your sins? Is he big enough to comfort you and help you in your affliction, in your suffering? Is he big enough for you to bow before him in awe and fear and respect and worship? There was an old Princeton Theological Seminary professor named Dr. Wilson. And he was known for coming to chapel to hear his former students preach when they were invited to preach. And about 12 years after his graduation, the great and famous Presbyterian pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was invited to Princeton Theological Seminary to preach in chapel. And Dr. Wilson, one of his former professors, came and he sat down in the front of the chapel to hear Dr. Barnhouse preach. And when the service was over, Dr. Wilson approached Dr. Barnhouse. And they exchanged pleasantries. And then he looked at Dr. Barnhouse and he said, if you come back to preach in chapel again, I will not be here to hear you. I only come hear my former students one time. And I come to see whether they're a big godder or a little godder. And you, sir, are a big God preacher. I will never be back to hear you again. Do you believe in a big God? A God that's bigger than your suffering? I don't know about you, friends. I can only speak for me today. I want to know, be known as a big God preacher. I want to show you the majesty and the glory and the power of God. And I want to believe in such a big God that when suffering and affliction become my lot in life, I will not waver in resting in this big God's sovereign hands over my life. Is your God that big? Let's pray.